Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Did Twitter benefit from having Trump on their platform? Yeah, I mean, they absolutely benefited from having Trump on the platform, and they won't deny it. But at present, Trump's late night tweets making headlines again. A few minutes after midnight, the president tweeted, despite the constant negative press cough thief. Like, I don't know about America, but Donald Trump has definitely made Twitter great again. Say what you want. Say what you want. People were searching Kofefe on the internet. You know, they say he's the most consequential user they've ever had, not necessarily in raw follower numbers, but the fact that he just drove an enormous amount of attention to Twitter. Nobody knows if North Korea's Kim Jong-un has seen Donald Trump's latest tweet. Uh, the president increasingly frustrated and lashing out on Twitter with claims Every journalist in the world had to pay attention to Twitter to know what the president was tweeting day in and day out. And they admit that really helped them grow the service. It was the most Trumpian of ways to end the year, with the president posting a blizzard of tweets to close out 2018. The fact that they chose to kick him off the platform with, you know, about a week left in his presidency, you can look at that and say they were really making a values-driven decision. And there's a perfectly fair argument to justify that interpretation. You could also look at that and say they realized that he was not going to have the sort of impact as an ex-president that he had as president. And so it was a lot easier for them to kick off this, you know, sort of former president from their platform than it would have been to kick off the president of the United States. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Nancy Scola on an Internet without President Trump. So Facebook moved first, which is unusual for Facebook. Usually they lag a little bit behind. Uh, But Facebook moved first on January 7th, um, which is the day after the siege of the Capitol. They decided to kick uh, Trump off the platform for good. Some breaking news. The president, President Trump, has been banned indefinitely from Facebook and Instagram and at least until the end of his presidency. And they said, you know, their line in the sand had always been when people post uh, things that incite offline violence that create harm in the real world, that's what they can no longer allow. So even though their assumption in the past had been the best possible situation is for people to hear from their political leaders, this was just a step too far. So Facebook moved first. Then we saw some smaller sites act, um, things that we don't necessarily think of in this conversation about content moderation, but sites like um, Shopify, which is an e-commerce platform, they kicked a few stores that were affiliated with Trump off their platform. We saw Twitch, the gaming site, block his account. And then on Friday, so a couple days after the incident at the Capitol, Twitter moved. Mr. Trump lost his primary megaphone overnight when Twitter permanently shut down his personal account, breaking off his connection to nearly 90 million followers. They also suspended one used by his campaign. So Twitter said, you know, we had given a couple of warnings to the Trump campaign over the years and, and very recently and said, you can't keep breaking our rules. And if you do it again, we're going to kick you off. It was it was interesting because what finally prompted Twitter to act, at least as they tell it, were a couple of tweets that like weren't particularly on their face that alarming. They they kind of read as fairly innocuous. One was Trump saying to his supporters, you know, calling them patriots, um, sort of encouraging them to keep up their protest of the election, but not in like a really direct way of saying, you know, you need to like engage in violence, that sort of thing. The one that Twitter said they found particularly alarming was a tweet of Trump saying that he simply wasn't going to go to the inauguration which wasn't interpreted in sort of the rest of the world as particularly upsetting. Twitter looked at and then said, 
we think that's a signaling to supporters that because he's not going to be there, they should feel free to engage in violence. You kind of think, you look at that and say, they may well have had some information from law enforcement saying, if Trump tweets something like this, that's a signal to his supporters and take particular caution around something like that. So that's what prompted Twitter to act. Twitter is Trump's biggest platform, his preferred platform. What sort of response have we seen from him having had that taken away? And also, what sort of response have we seen from his allies on the right? So the response from Trump has been pretty muted, which is shocking and not shocking. Not shocking in that he simply does not have Twitter to, you know, rail on Twitter anymore. Um, So he's had to do things like issue statements from the White House, which he's traditionally been reluctant to do. (laughs) I also want to say a few words about the unprecedented assault on free speech we have seen in recent days. In the couple statements he's made since um, the Capitol situation, he makes sure to make a point of how he's being silenced by these social media platforms. These are tense and difficult times. The efforts to censor, cancel and blacklist Our fellow citizens are wrong and they are dangerous. The real pushback we've seen is on behalf of his allies. So folks like Jim Jordan, who is a Republican from Ohio in the House, he's a pretty prominent Trump ally. Not just about impeachment anymore. It's about canceling, as I've said, canceling the president and anyone that disagrees with them. The Ayatollah can tweet the president can't. During the impeachment proceedings this week, Jordan said Trump is being canceled from Twitter as part of a broader effort on the part of the left that's been going on for four years. And Jordan made the point that Republicans often make, conservatives often make, that the Ayatollah of Iran is able to tweet and Donald Trump's not. And that just shows how boneheaded this decision is. The double standard has to stop. And frankly, the attack on the First Amendment has to stop. So the ACLU came out with a statement that said... As good as it might feel to some people to take away Donald Trump's Twitter account after all these years, it should be alarming to people who value their civil liberties. And it goes to show the enormous power that these companies, and not even these companies, but a handful of executives at these companies have to determine who and who doesn't get access to these really remarkable sort of, you know, in the scope of history, we haven't really had distribution engines this powerful. And these companies can decide who gets to use them. And it's one thing to say Donald Trump's not allowed to use it anymore, but the ACLU's point was, what if they start silencing activists, right? In the United States, in other countries that people find objectionable, we just shouldn't be applauding a decision that might feel good in the moment, but that has broader implications for speech that should be concerning. Yeah, I guess regardless of whether you think these bans are right or wrong, like there's no denying that we've all kind of like felt the silence and tangible absence of Trump's constant social media posting. I mean, what do you think this past week and the bans we've seen tell us about the power these tech companies and their executives have and the role they're playing in American politics at this moment? Yeah, it is remarkable, right? Like the vacuum, the sort of silence around what had been Trump's tweets. I realized this week how much of a learned reflex I just have to wake up in the morning and think, okay, what has Trump tweeted? (laughs) And it took a few days to realize, no, he's not. He's really not going to (laughs) tweet. We have to sort of look elsewhere. So that's been something to adapt to. That goes to show just how powerful a platform it has been for him. It also 
goes to show how much power these companies have, these a few executives that these companies really have, to determine not only what people can post and not post on the internet, but how events play out, right? The the part of the criticism of Trump's use of Twitter all along and Facebook too, to some extent, is that he's used these platforms not just to be mean, but to shape people's behavior, right? To like, you know, incite violence, to 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 encourage protesters to take offline action that causes real world harm. And so if these companies say, okay, you know what, we're hitting pause on that, we're, you know, we're pulling this account, and they're doing that because they have the ability to shape events, it means they have the ability to shape events. And these are not, you know, in these companies, it's not as if there's some great council of elders making these decisions. Ultimately, it's up to pretty much the CEO, and that's a handful of very few people in Silicon Valley who are making these calls. So the fact that it was such a big deal for Twitter to make this decision, somewhat to a lesser extent for Facebook to make this decision, and how much there was also a sigh of relief in a lot of quarters because people are very concerned about this inauguration week that we're heading into, inauguration day, that there's going to be violence around it. And people thought, okay, if, if Trump doesn't have these platforms, there's a lesser chance of violence around these hugely consequential moments in American history. It just goes to show how much power these people really have. And I think in a way it's become normal. It's sort of the new normal, but it's worth taking a step back and realizing, wow, like the fact that they can shape world events with a simple yes or no decision is pretty amazing. Given all of this, you know, Trump's deplatforming and how impactful it's looking to be and the arguments it sparked over free speech, where do you think this debate over tech companies and the powers that they hold right now is headed over the coming months and the next year? So there are two threads here that I think are worth keeping an eye on. One is that some of the reaction we saw to Trump's deplatforming came out of Europe, and it came from people who you know, by everyone's understanding, you're just no fans of Donald Trump, but they raise concern about it. So for example, the spokesperson for Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, said the chancellor found this problematic, the Twitter's move in particular problematic. And they said it shouldn't be up to these social media executives to make these unilateral decisions about who can and cannot use their platforms. In a way, that's a twisting of a knife on an argument that Europeans have been making for years that regulators and lawmakers in the United States, particularly Congress, you know, they hoot and holler and hold hearings about tech companies, but they haven't actually done anything to set any rules of the road for how these companies operate. And so Europe's saying, look, it's pretty clear now that approach isn't working. Maybe you all will actually step up and regulate and legislate at some point. If that conversation kind of makes its way back to the United States, where members of Congress finally say, you know what, it's not enough for us just to complain. We're going to have to actually write some rules down on paper. That'll be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. The other interesting thread that I think is important to pay attention to is that there's real debate on the right about how Republicans and conservatives should think about these platforms. So there's sort of the more traditional libertarian thinking of these are private companies. We might not like the decisions that they make, but they're private companies. We're seeing the more dominant conversation on the right in recent years be, no, these companies are too important. We can't just leave them alone. You see folks like Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, become the sort of leading voices in this argument of, no, no, we need to dictate how these companies operate. That battle on the right is going to be really interesting to see how that plays out in the next few years, because the Republican anger at, quote unquote, big tech is kind of the continuation of Trump-style populism, right? They have seized upon big tech as like enemy number one in some ways. If folks who are on that part of the train um, end up kind of seizing control of the, of the Republican Party, or if it kind of swings back to the more like traditional mainstream Republicans who think we might not like these companies, but we can't tell them what to do, that's going to be 
consequential when we talk about people running for Congress, running for the White House again in four years, who actually gets control of the Republican Party is obviously going to be super important. And I think looking at how the party reacts to social media in the next couple of years is kind of going to be like an early indicator of which wing of the party really is going to be seizing control. Nancy Scola, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Jeremy. Also today, President-elect Joe Biden is calling on Congress to swiftly pass a nearly $2 trillion COVID relief package soon after he takes office, with significant sums directed at expanded testing, accelerating vaccine development, and safely reopening schools. The plan, which was announced last night, marks a sharp break with the Trump administration, ramping up the federal government's role in everything from testing to vaccine delivery. It would also include $1,400 per person checks to working families, extended unemployment insurance, and housing and nutrition aid. Biden's team says they've been consulting for weeks with lawmakers in both parties and are pushing for bipartisan support for the plan, but they do anticipate GOP pushback and are taking their case for urgent action directly to the public to ramp up pressure on Congress. And House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is rejecting calls within the Republican caucus to remove Representative Liz Cheney from party leadership over her vote to impeach President Trump. A McCarthy spokesperson confirmed the stance to Politico on Thursday. A number of GOP members have demanded Cheney be ousted from her conference chair position after she became the highest-ranking House Republican to vote for Trump's impeachment on Wednesday. Cheney was also the second House Republican to openly endorse impeachment on account of inciting insurrection. In a scathing statement she issued on Tuesday night about Trump's role in the riots at the Capitol, saying, quote, there has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. The Politico Dispatch production team includes Jenny Ament and Sadiq Reddy. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.